there's a lot of hope and there's a lot of hope and um that's why i'm i'm, I'm happiest i'm on sabbatical now i'm happiest when i'm in the classroom because you see these people and you see that jesus christ is working in their lives and it's a constant reminder that the world does not need to be the way it is and can and will be better and that's that's a good deal be a positive catalyst on the people they support, the organizations they serve, and the communities they live in. This podcast will make you think, laugh, and grit your teeth with new determination to make your parish or business a place of transformation, passion, and purpose. If you're still breathing, you are powered for impact. Hey everyone, Christian here. Thanks for tuning in. Today we have theologian Dr. David Dean on the podcast. David is an incredibly intelligent human being, yet he has this ability to draw somebody like me in and help me understand the complex beauty that is our faith. That is such a rare and valuable gift, and I love that you are here to experience it with us today. Enjoy. Lift off and the clock has started. Forming the minds of the next generation is one of the responsibilities we have as Christians. And our guest today is Dr. David Dean, who is planted so squarely in that space. Dr. David, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me on, Ron. I appreciate it. Just as we were doing our, our pre-talk before the show started, I realized, wait a minute, dogmatic theology, that's where I first connected with you. I had forgotten all about that. That's so, that was a, such a wonderful video series. That was so much fun. So much fun. Yeah, that was my first time really working with Father James Mallon and um, being introduced to some of the the principles and ideology that he was to implement so much more fully with divine renovation. And, and yeah, that so it was an exciting time for me and one that I cherish. I smile because I know that him and Anne-Marie called you the one-hit wonder because, or not one-hit wonder, sorry, the one-take wonder because they'd have an idea and you'd just You'd just be able to riff, enjoy yourself, and it'd be like, wow, I guess we got that. <laughs> it's fun. It was such a fun. <laughs> well, I'm so happy to have you on the podcast today, where I do really want to crack open the whole idea of forming minds, because you are uh, the associate professor at the Atlantic School of Theology, and you're forming minds of people, Catholics and non-Catholics, who are coming to be rooted in theology. But before we do, I'd love to and I don't, I don't know the answer to this question, but I would love for you to share with me your faith story. Like, at what point did you encounter Jesus in a way that began to change everything? Um, that's, so let me just start by saying, if I ramble too long, <laughs> just, just, like, just cut me off. <laughs> um, it's, um, I think in some ways, it's, um, it's a fairly conventional story. Um, one that's, I think, shared by many people of my generation, particularly my generation of people from Ireland. The Ireland I grew up in was a, a Catholic Ireland, which, was, which had strengths and weaknesses. I think perhaps more weaknesses than strengths. The weaknesses are all too evident. It was a Christian faith that was um, wafer thin, that was on the surface level. It was, it was cultural Catholicism. It was a form of Catholicism that was mingled with nationalism and 
um, and, and, and it was just soaked through with hypocrisy. One of the primary, um, so I was born in 1973, so the Pope visited, I think, in 1979, and I was six. And one of the, the big events um, from Pope John Paul II um, visited Ireland, which is often seen as a sign of just how vibrant the faith was in Ireland at the time, is that you had a million people. Now, in Southern Ireland at the time, the population was three million. And one million came to a big field at Clonmacnoise in, in, in County Offaly to see him. Again, another million showed up in the Phoenix Park, and so everyone got to see him. But there was a million people there in the pouring rain, and the place was going crazy. And so this is seen as just the, the high watermark of Catholic Ireland. And Pope John Paul II was introduced on stage, and the crowd was warmed up by the two most popular leaders in Ireland at the time, two most popular religious leaders, um, Bishop Eamon Casey and a guy called Father Michael Cleary. And these were the two most popular clerics. And they were both um, clerics, they were both fathers, and they were both fathers also in a literal sense, as well as a theological sense, in that they had fathered children. And this is the Ireland at the time that it was outward, to, to, to look from the outside, this is a vibrant Catholicism. And what it was, was a, a cultural expression of Catholicism that was laced through with um, hypocrisy, um, lack of proper relationship with Jesus Christ. And, it was, um, and it, was, it was dying, and in many ways it was dead. Um, we just didn't realize it yet. And so this was the Ireland I grew up in. Now, the good side of that was, that it was also soaked through with, with, with trappings of religion that can help form a young mind. And so I was, uh, my, my sister is eight years younger than me. And so for the first eight years of my life, and really for a few years after, I was an only child. And so frequently bored. And my father loved books. He didn't read any, but he loved them. <laughs> and so he, 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 would, he would collect books. And oftentimes he'd collect books from, you know, from monasteries that were thrown away books. And so we had copies of a big, massive um, Butler's Lives of the Saints. And so I remember reading about the stories of these saints and the heroism and the martyrdom. And it just made a massive imprint on me. And so at an early stage, while I was part of a, of a cultural Catholicism that was dying, I also developed a relationship with Jesus Christ and indeed the Blessed Mother that never abandoned me, um, despite the fact that I, at various stages, um, moved away and wanted to move away. God was always, and Jesus Christ was always, was always present and intimate. Um, I was asked recently by a student the most bizarre question. We don't think it's bizarre, but you know, she was asking, you know, when did when did religion start? Like when did the like at what stage in human history did someone first develop the notion of God? And it's such a bizarre question because it assumes that the that the default position is godlessness. You know, when there's never been a human who's ever lived who you know, who, who wasn't part of a world in which the vast, overwhelming majority knew God intimately, intimately. There was never a human being who didn't know God intimately in their hearts um, unless, they, unless they pushed God away. In fact, you know, you would think that about, I suppose, 99.9999999% of every human who's ever lived knew God and was close to God. 
so much so that you think that the modern atheism, you know, we, we can only really see it as a kind of a strange form of insanity because <laughs> it's such a minority perspective. You know, <laughs> it's a tiny minority perspective in human history. And yet for this, um, you know, uh, girl who asked the question, she was so enculturated by that perspective that she, even as a Christian, thought that people were wandering around without relationship with God. And so God, so I went through the, through the brutalization of one's faith that it that was um, university. And the university that I went to, and I, I was studying philosophy, but I also took some um, religion classes. And it was just providing the most anemic, um, silly, um, trite, wishy-washy version of religion. And my faith at that stage had grown almost, almost dormant. Um, I, I, I didn't have a, a real relationship with Jesus Christ at that time. I don't think I was going to Mass. I self-identified as a Marxist. I, um, I was very much into the philosopher Nietzsche. And yet, I can remember constant times. Um, I remember on Christmas one time, I didn't go to Mass. I was in the, in the entryway. And so my, like my family are, like are there, and it's a Christmas thing. You go along with your family. I remember looking out through these sort of eye-level stained glass windows. And I remember just being haunted by Jesus Christ, that Jesus Christ just would not for a second say, okay, David, you're just too much of a pain in the ass. <laughs> I, I want nothing to do with you. You're just a boring, privileged, entitled university student. <laughs> Jesus Christ just constantly, constantly offered himself to me and loved me and, and, and wouldn't leave me alone. And that really, I think, was where you know, the relationship became real um, was, was in that return after an outright atheism um, that I just simply couldn't, I couldn't get away from the fact that Jesus Christ wouldn't leave me. That it wasn't that I had to try and find Jesus. And so you have these people, you know, where is, you know, where can you find God? Is it God is some kind of, you know, furtive woodland creature hiding behind a bush or a dish, you know, God, every time I was in trouble, every time I was in need, every time I looked into my heart, Jesus Christ was there saying, I love you. And I just couldn't, I just couldn't get away. I just, I tried, I just did everything um, and just couldn't be done. And so I decided that in, in, in college, which was ironic because theology was terrible. It was just trite and silly and the worst possible kind of theology. Um, whereas the philosophy I was engaging in terms of postmodernism were robust and vibrant. And I thought that, look, this either I'm a very, very sick man who has this psychosis whereby I can't shed myself of this presence of Jesus Christ constantly at me, loving me, um, um, or there is something to this and I've got to try and, and I've got to try and work it out. And so that's what I tried to do that I tried to offer or tried to, I tried to study and see, was there not from my professors, not from the theology that would be given, but was there elsewhere in Christianity 
resources that could answer the questions that were being posed by atheists like Friedrich Nietzsche? Was there, was there any rational means that I could say to myself that this Jesus Christ, who I've tried to shake off and can't, who, 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 who loves me despite the fact that I'm an absolute jerk, that this Jesus Christ is actually real and that this Jesus Christ is, is credible. And so that's what, what graduate studies were for me, that I sort of embarked on this process. And, um, and, and, and whether it was successful or not, um, as, soon as, I, as soon as I just gave up and said, look, I've tried my best and Jesus Christ will not leave me alone. Jesus Christ just loves me too much. Um, then, then it became a process of just ever deepening, ever coming to see the world differently. Just this process, and again, it's not a it's not a blanket transformation, but it's a process. And even though I'm still a wretch, and I'm still a sinner, and I'm still you know a failure in so many ways of my life, I'm far less of a wretch than I would be without Jesus Christ. Um, I'm an infinitely better person and I'm a better father and I'm a better scholar and I'm a better human being than I would be without Jesus Christ. And I guarantee that the same could be said of everybody else in the world. <laughs> no matter who you are, you're going to be an awful lot better um, with Jesus Christ in your life than without. And so that relationship with Jesus Christ then led to a uh, an, an ever-increasing awareness of the presence of the Holy Spirit, um, the presence of the Holy Spirit um, soaking the Christian life, soaking prayer, soaking sacrament, soaking human relationships, and that this, you know, if, if, if that, you know, infection by Jesus Christ was the, was the start, then it was added to, and again, it became more infectious through relationship with life of the church. And um, and it, and it billowed, and um, you know it's again. And every single Christian could say the same: that every single good thing about them is because of the presence of Jesus Christ. It's because of the Holy Spirit. Um, you take that away from me, and I'm nothing. Um, and so yeah, so it's a it's you know it's a story where, and it, 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 it it's. The church, by which I mean cultural Catholicism in Ireland, we did our absolute best to destroy the faith. We, it, it, it's hard to imagine how we could have done more. Um, but Jesus Christ would not abandon us. And um, that's my personal experience. And I think it's the experience of the church writ large. No matter what we do, Jesus Christ will love us and be there for us because that's who Jesus Christ is. Boy, that's, uh, thank you for sharing that, David. I was in Ireland just before COVID and it was just such a treat to be there because my mom's family's from Ireland. And so hear all the stories of drinking and fighting and go over there and actually experience it. It was wonderful. (laughs) (laughs) The the roast pork and potato dinners. It was just, it just felt like I was home, but you know, there was a real, uh, a heavy sadness in terms of the aging of the church and the concern for young people and the disconnect between young people and the current system of parish life. And, and, uh, and, and I know they're working hard over there. Uh, there's great bishops over there, yep. 
really, really, really trying to get to the root of things and wanting to be a part of the solution and some, some great priests along for the ride. And I know there's so many committed lay people doing great things. I just pray for Ireland regularly. Um, And so it's neat to get that, that perspective from you. So as you're, as you're sharing your experience of the the very robust uh, theology you got in your undergraduate, uh, wink, wink, nudge, nudge. It sounds like that was almost the driver for you. Was it when, when it came to not only getting, you know, going on to graduate school, but then even teaching because nobody would say of, of Dr. David Dean in Nova Scotia, hey, there's a guy, there's a place to go to get some really flaky theology. <laughs> I anytime I get to stay, I remember we were at CCO conference and I gave my talk and you were speaking after me. And it's like I am sticking around. I have got to hear this guy again. And you blew my mind when you talked about the Holy Spirit. I mean, I just love being in your presence when you get on a roll with any topic because you get right to the heart of it. So what what, what drove you to get into teaching? Was that it or I think that was it. I think that, so it's, it's simultaneously terrifying and hopeful that when you think about the decline in, in the church, there's, you know, there's really two possible reasons for it. Either one, that somehow there it's, it, you know, it lacks truth or that Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit are not abroad in the world. Um, or two, it is true, they are active in the world, and it's our fault. <laughs> you know? And um, the, the theology I engaged was a theology that had had its backside handed to it for centuries by secularism and atheism. It's a theology which, had, which, is, which is radically, radically failed. And again, what I mean by that is, so the very first lecture I was at in Trinity College Dublin back in 1992 was a public lecture that was given by Hans Kung, a German, a famous German theologian. And Hans Kung's primary role was, um, and, and he, you know, he, he would say this himself, the goal is to try and make the faith palatable to modern man, non-inclusive language. And um, is, is, and so he, what he was trying to do was to try and reinterpret everything. Um, in, and so really, you know, we, you can't talk about resurrection because, of course, no, no, no modern man can believe in that. And so what you talk about is the, is the Christian experience of hope that came, and that's kind of like the resurrection. And so this was the whole approach, this uh, kind of a demythologizing approach that he got from people like Rudolf Bultmann. And, and that was the best that they could do. That was their pitch. But on the one hand, I'm reading people like Nietzsche and Richard Dawkins and whoever. And on the other hand, you've got people like that. And it's just not a fight. It's just not a fight. Um, and, and, and so that's the thing, that a sort of the version of Christianity that I was exposed to wasn't credible, believable, or inspiring. It was um, the best it could say is that we are also into social justice. Now, we're not as into it. We, we don't do it as well as secular atheists, but we, 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 we can do it too. That's the best thing that this theological approach could say. That's, that's the only thing it has. Or, 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 or else we give some semblance of, uh, of community. So, you know, if you're really lonely and you're not good at bowling or you don't like cards, come along. And you can at least not be completely lonely with us. That was that was essentially what the um, 
like you know like like, like what theology was and it was just it, it was just disastrous and then all of a sudden i went from these people who who didn't believe that's that's the thing like that the, the, their theology and students if you are if you're hearing a theologian and it strikes you this person doesn't really believe in God, or this person doesn't really have a relationship with Jesus Christ, and ignore what they're saying. Amen. Because it's not coming, it's not coming from Jesus, it's not coming from the word, it's not coming from the relationship. Just like just cut it loose. And that's the thing. These people didn't believe, and this is one of the problems with the church in Ireland for a long time. I think people stop believing, and yet, you know, they're 60 years of age. Are they really going to, you know, leave and a second career and so they stay there and do irreparable damage and we're coming off a, a couple of generations of that you know, we're coming off a couple of generations of people going through the motions in church leadership roles um without genuine faith and doing irreparable damage and so um my goal in being a theologian was simply for myself that it was that i wanted to try and um and see was there something to this and um and then when you read the, the theology of the church, when you read the church fathers, I came to Aquinas later on. Um, it was a Protestant theologian like Karl Barth, who was actually a massive influence on me earlier on. But when you read people whose work is in relationship with the Holy Spirit, Cardinal Ratzinger at the time um, was, was an example of, of, of someone whose work was like that. It just changes everything. And so um, what, what I would like to do and, and what I hope to do is to try and help um, you know, people be trained in theology such that they can um, help people see the truth, help people understand their faith in ways that are dynamic and inspiring, and that they will be on fire for the gospel. I think this is what theology has to do, and theology in an effort to become acceptable to, um, to, within secular universities, it sacrificed that a long time ago. And um, and it has to reclaim that. And if it doesn't reclaim it, heck with it, you know. Mm. Wow. What have been some of the, you mentioned uh, Carl Bart and um, Colonel Watsinger. Who else has, uh, who else has influenced you that really, those are TSN turning points in your, in your thought yeah, so, process. Yeah. So again, and again, I'm, I'm 48 now. And when I was a student, um, our department was just, you know, it was, it was agnosticism. And a, a guy called Lewis Ayres um, um, came to, to work with us for a few years. And then he moved on to Duke, and I think now he's back at Durham. And, um, and he was a big influence. And his thing was, so, you know, what I had heard was, you know, you talk about Christianity as if it's a thing. There's no such thing as Christianity. What you have is, you know, a hundred different Christianities. And which one is yours? And, and this was the general thing. And, and, and he showed me that actually, no, there is something that's, that, is, that, is just, that, is, that, is, that is theologically coherent that can be traced through Scripture and through the Council of Nicaea and the, and the, and, and the theological conversations around Nicaea. And so from him, I started to say, okay, so where I should be looking is um, not necessarily at Hans Kung and what's going on in Tübingen, but I should be looking at the Church Fathers, and I should be looking at Augustine. And it was at that stage that I read the Confessions, 
then of course that's a that's an absolute game changer. And um, and then there were two Anglican theologians who um, who who I heard speak in Dublin, and I spoke to after. One was a guy called John Milbank, and um, and the other was a, 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 a woman called Catherine Pickstock. And um, John Milbank's approach was. Well, the, the, he wrote a book in, I think, mid-90s when I was an undergrad. And I remember reading, and the first line, you know, normally you read the first line, you read the second line. I read the first line, and I sort of put the book down and went, oh, my goodness. And the first line was remarkable. It was, once, comma, there was no second. And I was like, my head exploded. What do you mean there was no secular? The secular is the norm. The secular, no. Once, nobody could imagine the world as banal. Nobody could imagine the world as cut off from God. Everybody understood life as lived in relationship with God and the world as, a, as, as an enchanted place touched by the presence of God. And we had to invent this thing called the sector. And then he offers this, this genealogy where he tells the story of how that God invented. And that was like uh, uh, a wowser moment for me. And so there were all these figures who, you know, I'm sure the listeners probably won't have won't have heard of, but in various ways, they started a journey. And I think that journey really, um, you know, led to me becoming more and more, led to me becoming capable of reading and understanding. Like, obviously, as a student, you read little, little, you know, gobbets from Aquinas here and there, and you go, oh, that's weird. <laughs> what the heck's that about? Um, but over, over the years, it made me the kind of person who, you know, in my late twenties, early thirties, could turn to Aquinas and um, and start to actually go, okay, I'm starting to see the coherence of this worldview, and um, and it was a beautiful thing. So, um, you know, I think that um, the people for me will be Protestant theologians like Karl Barth, Anglican theologians like John Milbank and Catherine Pickstock, um, and Catholic theologians like um, Joseph Ratzinger. Um, Pope John Paul II, um, and then pre-moderns, Thomas Aquinas, Augustine, Hildegard, and, um, and the church fathers in general. And, um, you know, that's, that's, that's where to go, I think. That's where to go. And, and, but more and more, you know, theology has changed. The, the, the theology went south, I think, you know, in the, in the 19th century. And so it's been lost for a couple of centuries with rare and beautiful exceptions like Joseph Ratzinger. But on the whole, it's in, it's in a bad place. Um, it's starting to turn. It's a different kind of place now. And, um, and, and, and hopefully theologians all over are waking up and saying, hang on, we need to be in service of the church. We need to be in service of people's faith. And that's the, that's the goal. The goal is to try and to try and serve Christ's mission. Like St. Paul was a theologian, you know. Um, that's how to do theology, to go out there and say, here's how it works. Here's how Jesus Christ can save your life. What's up? <laughs> you know, that's, that, that's the come best. Come one, come all. <laughs> exactly. That's, that's, that, that's it. That's what theology, I think, you know, ultimately, it's certainly the way I like to do it. That's, 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 that's what it should be. Beautiful. Now. In the work that you do in the classroom, um, what are you seeing right now? Like, what, what, what's your hope 
what are you seeing? What's your hope? Um, so the, the, the first thing to note is that I don't have, I, I don't work with undergrad, which is in one sense, you know, a pity. Um, and so my perspective is probably a little bit skewed. Occasionally I work with undergrads. And um, so an, an example of that would be, and it, and it, was, it, was, it was a really hopeful moment. Um, I, I was asked to give a talk in the, uh, in, at Dow. They were doing this program on, you know, it was like Western thought. <laughs> you know, it, was like, it was like everything. And they wanted someone to go in and talk about the filioque and, um, and, and why the, the debates over the, over the Trinity mattered in terms of the Great Schism. And so they, they wrote me in one and done, one, one lecture. And, and I remember speaking about the, about the, about the filioque and the doctrine of the Trinity. And um, afterwards, these two um, students came down to me and they were saying, that thing you were saying there where you were talking about how you know how you know we can be infused by you know by God, and that it can sort of you know change our lives and transform us. Like you know, like, like, like what is that? What is that? You know that that, that like, like that philosophy? And I was saying, well, that's Christianity. <laughs> you know? And they were saying, what? That's that's what? And they were people who had never really heard of Christianity as anything other than, oh, that's that thing that some people in America who hate people do. You know, that's, their, that's their only perspective on Christianity. And when they heard Christian theology, it was like, oh my goodness, this is, you know, this is an incredibly beautiful thing. And so that's the, that's the experience I have from um, when I encounter undergrads, that because they've never heard about this thing, they think that this thing, that there's, there's two perspectives on it. Um, one, it's the most incredibly beautiful and transformative and radical idea they've ever, ever heard. And the other is, it's the most incredibly beautiful, radical and transformative idea they've ever heard. And it's insane. But they're the only two perspectives that, I'm, like, like that, I'm, like, uh, that I get from undergrads because they're so alien to it. In, in terms of grads, you know, I've only been at, at AST 11 years, but I have seen a shift. And it's, um, and it's a very, very important shift. Christianity in Ireland was so, it was what a good citizen did. You know, it's what, a, it's what a good Irish person did. They did the whole Catholicism thing. And so let's say you're a young man um, who, you know, and this, again, was a factor in the sexual abuse crisis. You know, you're a young man with, um, you know, with, like, like with many psychological problems and you're feeling shame and guilt. And you have an opportunity to go into a profession where people will revere you and see you as the, as, the, as the best thing since sliced bread, and it's a job for life, and you'll never have any financial worries, and all you'll have is respect and admiration. People are flocking into the priesthood. And, it, and whether or not they had an actual call, whether or not they had an actual vocation, and of course, as time went on, they did irreparable damage. Even when I got to AST, and again, we don't, um, we're not a Catholic seminary, um, but we have students preparing for ministry in the United Church of Canada and in the Anglican Church and some other churches. There was still a wee bit of that, again, to, to a minuscule extent. There were, there were maybe some people who were thinking, you know, the church is filled with nice people and they make nice um, Rice Krispie treats and um, I could have a job there and they'd, you know, they'd like, you know, it's not too demanding and there's a good pension 
why not? You know, whether they had radical faith or not. Now, in the last 11 years, you know, being a Christian is, um, is, is more and more associated with being a social pariah. And so the only people who are coming in now actually do have a vocation. They actually are in relationship with Jesus Christ, and Jesus Christ is making a difference in their lives. And, and therefore, give me AST students in 2021 over AST students in 2001, any day of the week. You know, um, it's been a it's it's been a massive shift, and you see the same thing in in Catholic students. Um, you know what we have, so we have our most successful program is called the Diploma in the New Evangelization, where we um, where we have scores of adult Roman Catholic lay people who are coming to study just to become better able to speak about the faith. You know, we we say just to become more infected and infectious, more infected by the Holy Spirit. And more infectious to others. And these are people who in previous generations would have um, had their pipe and slippers and have seen the church as something that was just a thing. And if anybody had to do anything about it, it was the it was it was father um, or, or or the bishop. And it wasn't their responsibility. Again, they were the recipients of the faith. They weren't they weren't followers of Jesus Christ. That's changed now. They see the church sadly, in some cases, literally in flames. And they say, if this thing is going to change, then I've got to, I've got to take responsibility for it. That's amazing. That's wonderful. That's, that's lives changed. And, and, and it's happening because of where we are. There's a sense in which nobody should be, should be in any way worried, in one sense. Let's, let's worry, and that worry can be productive in, 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 in getting us off our backsides. But ultimately, we should only really be in despair about the future of the church if we wrongly assume that it will succeed or fail because of us. And the fact of the matter is, as I found out in my own life, it's about Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ will not abandon us. It just, it, it just won't. He should have. Like, again, we are the people who, who crucified him. We're the people who tortured him. We're the people who brutalized him. And he died for us and will never abandon we who abused and annihilate. You know? And so this, this is evident when I look at the lives of people in the Diploma in the New Evangelization Program. And again, many of these are in their 20s. Um, we even had one or two in their late teens who were um, sneaking out from undergrad lectures at other universities to take part. And we've got people in their 80s. You know, I remember, you know, giving a talk in, it, 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 your former um, residence in, in St. Benedict and there was one of the ladies there and she was you know about 180 years of age like she, was, she, was, she was in advanced years and she was saying look I'm 180 years of age like you know what have I got to, got to offer and I, like I remember telling her like you know sadly you're not off the hook sadly Jesus Christ loves you and that love is, gives you union with Jesus Christ, and Jesus Christ, the evangelical one. And therefore, the more you're conformed to Jesus Christ, the more you want to spread the gospel. And you have grandchildren and great-grandchildren, and you've got other people, and you have nurses and doctors, and all these people are, are people whose lives you can transform by your witness, by how you live, by how you speak, by how you'll die. Um, and so I think, you know, even there, there are even people who are, radical dynamic 
agents of cultural change long after society has consigned them to the rubbish bin. You know, Christ doesn't consign them to the rubbish bin. And they're still um, radical agents of change uh, because of their relationship with Christ. So um, it's an exciting place to be. It's an exciting place to be. And um, the church is a much better place to be in 2021 than it was. So the church in Ireland in 1979, where you have a million people in Clonmac Noise, um, and then you have the church today, when the church, for example, the Catholic Church is associated in, in media stories in the last six months with two things, pedophilia and genocide. Um, it's actually a healthier church in 2021 than it was in 1979. Um, there was more people, I think, saturated by the Holy Spirit today. And, um, and we're headed in the right direction today where we were participatory in, participants in, in, in really problematic stuff then. So there's a lot of hope, and there's a lot of hope, and um, that's why I'm, I'm, I'm happiest. I'm on sabbatical now. I'm happiest when I'm in the classroom because you see these people, and you see that Jesus Christ is working in their lives, and it's a constant reminder that the world does not need to be the way it is and can and will be better. That's, that's a good deal. <laughs> that does give a lot of hope and certainly a lot of excitement. We, you did mention earlier when we were talking before we hit the record button that you're on sabbatical. I've noticed that you've been doing some great videos. So thanks for doing those videos. Tell me a little bit of what you've been doing on your sabbatical because that's yeah. been just a treat. So thank you very much, Ron. The, um, the, the main thing I'm doing on my sabbatical is finishing up a book um, on moral theology. And the, the publishers, who are great people, God bless them, um, Lexington Fortress Academic, their plan is to do with my book what, is hap- what happened with my first book, which is that they will print maybe, I don't know, four or 500 copies, and that they will charge $100 plus for these copies, and they will sell them almost exclusively to libraries, and um, they'll make their money with, you know, 500 copies at $100 a pop. Um, but the problem is they'll all go into libraries and um, by and large, no one will read them. Um, my first book, Nietzsche and Theology, which sort of tells this, doesn't tell the story, but it, it, it offers, you know, theological arguments against relativism and all the rest of it. Like I'd say maybe nine people have read that book. <laughs> you know, it's, it's just not read. Now, again, part of it is the jargony language and all the rest of it. So at the start of sabbatical, I, was, I, had, I had two issues, I had two problems. One was, um, you know, is there anything I can do that I, you know, that would really be a, a fun break from writing that? Um, you know, I don't play golf. It's just something that I could do, which would be a fun thing to do. And then the second thing, is there anything I could do which would help me say to the publishers, you know, maybe people might be more interested in this than you think. Maybe it's yes. not just a book for other scholars. Maybe it could reach more people. And so the answer to both these questions um, was what if I had a, a good hobby, such as making YouTube videos on topics that the book that the book addresses, and 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 speaking about things that the book addresses, and it could entertain me and hopefully offer some theological resources for people struggling with with certain questions, and also I could turn around and say to the publishers, "Behold, I have five hundred <laughs> subscribers, and these, these people are interested in this." If you charge $30 for the book rather than 100 some of these people will buy. And yes. so why not do? And so 
it's 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 been going well. Uh, do I have 500 subscribers? No, nothing like it. Um, but I think I got 320 something. We're going to get uh, up to 500 after this podcast. Okay, that's the, that's the goal. <laughs> and so it's it's fun. It's looking at um, at these parts of theology, uh, these aspects of theology. Early, and I'm getting better at it. Like you know, it's it's been really helpful to me because at the start, I would sit down in front of a camera and I would do you know an hour and twenty minutes of of jargon filled of jargon filled waffle, and um, there were three or four other nerds who would love it. Um, but more and more, I've improved, and I'm learning how to speak more um, accessibly, and also in shorter sections. I'm using things like B-roll. Yeah. Know, and stuff like that. <laughs> I still don't do any of that, but I do have to get to that myself. But 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 hopefully it's it might not be more watchable, but it's certainly less unwatchable than it was at the start. And so um because of that, hopefully it can it can it can help some people or at least give food for thought for some people. And so um yeah, if any um of um people who are listening are interested, if they Google David Dean theology or you know, or, 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 or find me on Twitter at Dean Theology. Um, you'll see a link to the, to the channel in my, in my bio. And yeah, they could do an awful lot of um, good for me by, by, by subscribing or watching a video or two and give me an argument to go to Lexington Fortress Academic and say, behold, sell it to you. Behold, follow Dr. David (laughs) Dean online, and there's an E at the end of Dean, just in case you spell it wrong. Yeah, no, that's great. You know, it it reminds me, and I know this is, I I don't know how you'll take this, but I I remember the first time I discovered Jordan Peterson, just I heard enough people talking about it. I thought, oh, for heaven's sakes, who is this clown? I'll I'll watch him. And, you know, his videos are like two hours long. and, And, but I found them gripping. Honestly, David, I find you equally gripping. Like when the first time I heard you, because I'm not an academic. And so for me to listen to you and, and, and your vocabulary and the way you think and process things, you took me on a journey with you. You didn't leave me behind. I, I was able to come with you on what I consider. And I feel this way every time I listen to you, whether it's uh, a, you know a conference or whether it's what you uh, put out on YouTube. Honestly, I walk away completely transformed every time. And and not many people can do that. I don't know if you've ever thought about getting a Patreon account and putting some of your lectures online for people, but I know that, you know, my gosh, you, you guys got to check out. Well, I, I appreciate you saying that, Ron. Um, yeah, that's, that, that is wonderful to hear. Yeah, you're quite welcome. Anyway, I just I just thank the world of you. I'm so glad for the work that you do. And it's so exciting to to talk with you on the podcast. We're going to do this again sometime because it's absolute treat. God bless you, my friend. And keep up the great work. Enjoy your sabbatical. Good luck with that book. And uh, I'll make sure I get a coffee and, and you autograph it. And I'll even I'll send it. you one. I will send you one. <laughs> thank you so much, Rob. Appreciate it. God bless God you. Bless you Bye-bye. Thanks. Thanks. get enough of that guy. I mean it. Uh, I was inspired with optimism about the state of our church and the beauty of our faith, and I needed more. So what I did was I visited David's website and subscribed to his YouTube channel immediately after producing this podcast. I actually just finished watching his video on transubstantiation. 
He has so many more resources available on daviddean.org. So I'll ask, if you enjoyed today's podcast, please go check him out. And while you're at it, you may as well subscribe to this podcast too, if you haven't already. Thanks so much for joining us again, and we'll see you next week. I want to encourage you, as you leave this week, be faithful to God and generous to others. See you next time, and remember, if you're still breathing, you are powerful.